2: For tuning in and welcome to the August 16th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA 2S plus communities. I am Carell in the beautiful city of Las Vegas, Nevada. On this outing, we file a gay Tina report on an LA gay filmmaker, do a quick take on Christopher Isherwood, and chat up a transgendered musician. But first, We revisit a 2012 conversation with James Hormel. He passed away on August 12th at the age of 88. James Hormel is an American
3: philanthropist,
2: grandson of
3: the founder of Hormel Foods, and the first openly gay man to represent the United States as an ambassador. On New Year's Day, he'll turn 80
4: years old, but shows no sign of slowing down. I'm Jim Hormel, and I'm here to discuss... A book called Fit to Serve. This book uh, started in my mind around the time that I completed an ambassadorship in 2000. And 10 years later, we finally got the edited copy to a publisher.
3: What was the hardest
4: part of looking back over your life? The most painful part in looking back over my entire life was the period from about 1981 through the end of the 80s when the AIDS epidemic came upon us and literally hundreds of my friends were dying. And in the earliest days, nobody knew why. And then when we started to find out why, nobody was doing anything about it. It was a very, very difficult time. It's hard to remember. We try to put things like that out of our minds. But in the process of writing this book, it all came back and it was very painful. Tell
3: me about when you first kind of realized
4: you were different. I was coming into my puberty, and I noticed that I had feelings and attractions for other boys that I didn't see expressed by other boys. And so I started wondering whether, first of all, there was something going on that was different. And secondly, when I thought, yes, there was, was it something wrong with me? Was there something wrong with the way I was feeling because it seemed unique in my surroundings. And it took me a very long time. Back in those days, people didn't talk about sex at all, let alone sexuality. So I didn't know anything. And at the same time, inside me was all this stuff sort of bubbling away. And uh, then when I had the temerity to take some sort of approach about it, I wasn't recognized, I wasn't satisfied, I wasn't fulfilled, and I didn't understand it. I had a, a little period of time when I fantasized about having a twin with whom I could communicate, because then I'd have somebody who really understood me.
3: Ironically, in the 1950s, you weren't really alone, because most gay men were in the closet
4: with you. There were reasons that people didn't come out. The main one was that uh, in every state, homosexual acts were criminal. People went to jail, and people were arrested even on the suspicion that they were gay. And uh, when I eventually moved to Chicago, even in the 60s, that was happening. Police would raid bars and bathhouses, and the next day, people's names would be published in the Chicago Tribune sometimes on the front page, and it was terrible. It was outrageous, in my opinion. I saw the name of a friend of mine one time, a dentist in Chicago. And the next time I saw him, I mentioned how distressed I was to see his name reported like that. And he said to me, don't worry about it. He said, my clientele has doubled since then. (laughs) Well,
3: take me back to 1955. Tell me about Alice.
4: Alice and I went to Swarthmore College. That's where I met her. We dated, we were engaged, and two years after we had met, we married. Alice and I were in love, and at that time, I was trying to convince myself and everybody else that I was straight. There was a wonderful relationship, and we got married. We were both very young. Looking back, it seems a little rushed, although two years doesn't sound rushed. But we were married without my ever communicating to her that I had these other things going on inside me, these other feelings, these attractions to men. Not having told her about any of that before the marriage made it extremely difficult, in fact, in my mind, impossible to tell her afterward. So we were married for 10 years. We had children. We had five lovely children. I have 14 grandchildren now. I have five great-grandchildren. I'm very proud of them all.
3: Tell me about the end of the marriage and going on with your life as a gay man.
4: Well, the marriage ended because Alice and I simply weren't communicating. I mean, the fact that I had withheld from her a major part of me started shutting us both down. And ultimately, it was Alice who said, this isn't working anymore, and it's not good for either of us, and we need to separate. And I started then seeing people a little more openly, but I was still closeted. I was not telling anybody that I was gay for another couple of years. This is the mid-60s. During that time, the whole social climate was changing rapidly. Then there was Vietnam, and there were the social sexual revolutionaries, and uh, there was just a lot of stuff that sort of encouraged me to take another look at my own life and see where I really fit in. 1968 was an explosion. There were riots in Paris. There was the Prague Spring that was so ruthlessly put down by the Soviets. And then in this country, the political assassinations, there was Martin Luther King, there was Robert Kennedy. Terrible things were happening, terrible things that were wrenching to our society. And people, I think, were forced to examine those things.
3: When you moved to San Francisco in 1977, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City was still a newspaper column. Harvey Milk was running for local office and... You immediately became involved in the battle against something called Proposition
4: 6. Prop 6 is very similar to today's Prop 8. It was an attempt to prevent gay people, lesbians and gay men, from teaching in the public schools in California. And it was sort of a a spin-off of the successful effort that was conducted by Anita Bryant in Dade County, Miami, Florida. So inspired by her success, there were members of the California legislature who introduced this proposition onto the ballot, and it looked at first as if it would win handily, but a campaign was put together that involved as many prominent straight people as possible to point out how preposterous it would be if this happened in California— and ultimately the tide was turned and the proposition was defeated. And it was defeated fairly substantially. I think we were all surprised at the margin of victory, and it was very encouraging. I don't know what the pull was, but there was something that drew me into politics having to do with fairness, having to do with making things more true and honest— and it's interesting because that's what I was not doing with my own life at first. It took me a, quite a while to start making things true and honest.
3: But that didn't dissuade you from getting involved in politics
4: on the national level. What happened was in 1978 or 79, I had conversations with um, a couple of Minnesota friends, Steve Dean and Larry By, who were in San Francisco or in and out, and with Jim Foster, who had started the Society for Individual Rights before the 70s, I believe, they had an idea for a national political action committee. The reasoning behind it was uh, that people in Washington were paying no attention to gay-related issues. There were members of Congress who honestly said that they didn't have any gay people in their constituency. So I think Steve in particular wanted to show that this was not so, but uh, Steve was also trying to run an organization called the Gay Rights National Lobby and nobody would pay any attention to him. David Goodstein said, well, they're not going to pay attention to you until you start raising money because that's what speaks in Washington. And David actually went on a tour to raise money for an organization that was called the Human Rights Campaign Fund. The fund uh, started in 1980, and I was a part of its original board. And that sort of drew me into the national political scene. Not that I didn't care before then, because I certainly did. But that was probably the time when I started becoming very active on the national scene.
3: Tell me about President Clinton, beating him, and what followed from that.
4: I met him at an event where he spoke in San Francisco and it was an event on behalf of his candidacy. This was early in 92, and he was probably in third place at the time in a rather large field of candidates. And he was being besieged at that time by stories about a relationship with Jennifer Flowers and some other things that were in his background. And when I heard him speak, it was to an audience of San Francisco business types, And he said quite gratuitously, among other things, that he wanted to see the LGBT constituency properly represented. And when he talked about ending discrimination based on sexual orientation, it was the first time that I had heard it out of the mouth of a national candidate for anything. And it came, as I said, in a speech directed not at gay constituents, but at the business community in San Francisco. So... I made a point of introducing myself and uh, got the impression that he was a person who really did care and who really intended to make change. I had a friend, David Mixner, who had known him from Arkansas, and uh, David seemed to think very highly of him and said that he didn't believe that there were any other personal issues that would raise themselves during the campaign. So I became a supporter.
3: Such a big supporter in the fact that, in return, Clinton nominated you as ambassador to Luxembourg. But your confirmation was really, really brutal. As a philanthropist, you'd given money to the San Francisco Library. And somewhere in their stacks were art books. And in a few of those art books were nude pictures. So you were called a pornographer, even a pedophile.
4: The pedophilia piece came from Pat Robertson. And it was a typical Pat Robertson. And he made a big deal out of absolutely nothing. I was furious and I was hurt actually by it because I thought it was in, in terrible taste and extremely insulting and, and very offensive. Well, tell me about Luxembourg.
3: Finally get approved. You go there. How was it? You had a partner at the time. How did that work out?
4: Well, Luxembourg was very receptive as it turned out. During the time of my nomination, I had to sort of sit by silently because I couldn't speak out in challenge of these accusations. And it was sort of the same for Luxembourg. People went to the ambassador, the Luxembourg ambassador in Washington, and said, you know, what about this guy? And and all he could say was, our government has approved his nomination, which was true. And in fact, the nomination wouldn't have been made without former approval from the country. I mean, that's just routine. So when the appointment finally occurred and I got there, I found a government that was going out of its way to welcome me. They were extremely receptive. They wanted me to feel that this was not their doing. And in fact, they were agitated, I think, because the American Senate had prevented them for two years from having the appropriate kind of representation.
3: What do you want people to take away from your
4: book? I guess that I'm especially concerned about people saying that being gay is a choice, because for me, it was not a choice. I tried very hard to do anything I could to not be gay. And uh, I look back on my life and think about when I realized I was left-handed when I was in kindergarten, first grade, the teachers would take the pen and put it in my right hand and I'd be seated at a desk that had a little right-handed stand on it. And I would just automatically change to my left hand to, to right. I mean, that was just the way it was for me. And, and when I look at my sexuality, I think it's the same sort of thing. It's in the DNA and, and there may be degrees of homosexuality, as there are degrees of left-handedness, and there are people who are ambidextrous. But I cannot see it as a choice, and I very strongly believe that if people would not consider it as a choice, they would be more receptive to the pleas for equal treatment. Equality is what we're seeking, and I don't think that we can really get there without exposing this kind of thinking. And the other thing that I feel is very important is coming out, which after all is a way of exposing the fallacious thoughts about gay people. If all of us would come out, then they would realize that we are their employers, we're their consumers, we're their families, we're their friends.
3: This has been a conversation with Ambassador James C. Hormel. His book is called Fit to Serve, and he certainly was. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I don't believe in hatred. I don't believe in shame. But most of
5: all, I don't believe that things will never change. You see, some of us look different and some of us don't care. Some of us are standing out so that people stop and stare. Because out in this world, there are people who are scared. But you know they'd be alright if they knew somebody cared. Out in this world.
2: On hearing of the death of James Hormel, Nancy Pelosi's reaction was immediately to remove her mask so she could be heard and then say, with his gentle yet powerful voice and undaunted determination, Jim made it his mission to fight for dignity and equality for all. He also liked my scarves. I just made the last part up. Don't go away. We'll
6: be right back. Liberace and Elvis swap outfits. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On the evening of November 14th, 1956, Elvis went to Liberace's show at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas and was invited backstage. The hotel press agent quickly notified the press to record their meeting. Liberace told Elvis he needed to add more glitz to his outfits when he performed. So they exchanged jackets. Elvis wore Liberace's gold sequin tuxedo jacket, and Liberace put on Elvis's sport jacket. They then exchanged instruments, Elvis banging away at the grand piano, and Liberace jamming with Elvis's guitar. Elvis's manager, Colonel Parker, was so impressed by the new look that he ordered a full gold LeMay suit for Elvis. He donned it on his spring tour, which opened in Chicago just four months later. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Justin Ayers.
0: Hello, I'm Our Lady J, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
5: I-
2: Welcome back. I am Carell in Las Vegas, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
7: Bienvenidos. Welcome to The Gaytino Report Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my guest, Dante Alencastre. Dante is an executive director of the California LGBT Arts Alliance and an award-winning documentary filmmaker, focusing on the Latino, Latina, transgender, and gender non-conforming sub-tribes within the community. Bienvenido, Dante. Oh, you look so serious, mijo. My goodness.
8: (laughs) Good morning, Dan. I've been looking forward to this invitation for a long time. I had to beg to get here, actually.
7: Well, you know, I can be had for the price of a dry martini. That's what you should have done. You know, I took that last sentence, non-conforming sub within the community, right from your bio, because I was intrigued by the term sub-tribe.
8: Well, that bio was actually put together maybe eight years ago. I was just learning about the spectrum of genders that are part of our community. And also because I have been working with uh trans women and trans men from the very beginning of my documentary career, so since 12 years ago. And I had seen the evolution of the language of gender. And I have also been working on people from our history, like Jose Saria, who was a notorious transformista transvestite that was called at the time. And he was gender non-conforming before even the word had been coined. And what year are we talking? Um, We're talking about 1961 when he ran for office in uh, San Francisco to be a city supervisor. And I was in the middle of doing the the whole research when uh, my producer, John Johnston, made the bio. He said, you are really mining the sub-tribes because it's not the gay and the lesbian community that you're discovering and documenting. You're really talking about the more hidden, the more invisible. And it's funny that you say that because Bambi, in her film, Transvisible, she talks about talking for the people that can't speak for themselves. So that's what I was trying to do. It piqued my interest because their stories were as vital and relevant and important to me. And this is what I've done. I will keep doing it until I can
7: and that's what you do. do. You've been giving a voice to the voiceless, a kind of cliché term, but it's really true. But that voice is getting louder. I mean, the trans community just in the last, what, few years, they're very vocal and strong with leaders like Bambi and quite a few. So they are developing their own voice for sure. But since we're talking about the filmmaking, which is fascinating, it, the concept for that whole idea kind of started in your native Peru?
8: Yes. My first film, which I shot, it's almost... 12, 13 years ago, was uh, had just uh, come back from living in Europe for 10 years. I had a relationship. We were married. We got divorced. And I came back, and I just wanted to take a break from everything. Instead of going back to New York where my mom lived, I went to Peru. So I have to contextualize the story a little bit. I always had a camera. My mom gave me my first handy cam when I was, like, 18 years old. So I've always been documenting our family birthday receptions and all of that. As I got older, I I wanted to document real people. And when I was living in Europe, I got a a yen for interviewing, like, real people who are going through homophobia and Islamophobia, transphobia in the Netherlands. So when I took my camera to Peru and I started interviewing, at least attempting to interview my so-called friends, and nobody wanted to be on camera. They were all closeted. Most of them were like, you know, had two lives. And I thought, this is interesting. I want to make a film about this internalized homophobia, about being in the closet or, you know, and all of that. And, uh, and, you know, nobody wanted to talk to me. So a friend of mine who's an activist said, well, I know a couple of people that might want to talk to you. And that's when I met Gabby Marino, who was a trans woman, the same age as I was at the time. And we just sat together, and three hours, she didn't know me from Adam, and she just told me her whole life story. We laughed, we cried, we had so many things in common, and that's the that's the idea that came to me. It's like, I have more things in common with Gabby, because we grew up in Peru at the same time. We had the same iconography, Maria Felix, Dolores del Rio, Silvia Pinal, Las Ten all of that. Then we have different. Of course, her life has been hard, staying in Peru and living her authentic self. But that could have been my life if I would have stayed in Peru, being an openly gay man back in the 70s and 80s. So yeah, I got a lot of empathy for her. She introduced me to some of her friends who are activists. And that became her first film, En El Fuego, which premiered at Outfest in 2007 and shone all over the world. It won the Audience Award for Best Short Doc. And that introduced me to the community here in LA. I mean, people were curious to see a film that had nothing to do with surgeries or hormones. There were these women who were putting their lives on the line by just coming out, out of their homes, out of their doors and living their authentic lives. And that's how I met most of the community, Queen Victoria, Bambi Salcedo, Valerie Spencer, Maria Roman, they all came to see the film and and we became respectful of each other's work from doing this, yeah.
7: And El Fuego and the Fire.
8: And El Fuego, yeah.
7: And then that led to your doing Raising Zoe, about a trans-Latina teen that transitioned as a child almost, then Bambi's story, and... um...
8: Well, Bambi's came first. Before Zoe? Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. oh yeah. Yeah, Bambi, like I said, she came to one of my screenings at USC. I remember I was having a talk with Queen Victoria. And Bambi came, and I didn't know who she was. I had seen her um, in the back of a truck talking about supporting um, No on 8. And I was really impressed. I've never seen a trans woman as a political leader, activist. And I was honored that she was there, and she told me, you know, I'm glad that you're doing this work because here we live on on the daily struggle and we, we know that our sisters in Latin America, Mexico, where she's from, are having a harder time you know, because they don't even have a, a way to express their oppression, uh, the discrimination, and everything that they live day to day. So from then, I had met through friends of mine, Roland Palencia, mm-hmm. who is a long-term uh, Latino activist, Long HIV term. activist here in, in L.A. So I really lucked out then. I mean, I, I met the, actually the key people. And when I, Roland asked me at one point, like, what are you going to do next? And I said, I want to make a film about Bambi. So we had to convince Bambi because at the time, Bambi, it was all about her work, her work at the children's hospital. She was doing the calendar to raise funds for the kids, and I volunteered for her for many years. And somehow Roland and I, we convinced her that doing a film about her life will enhance her activism. And that's how that film Transvisible that came out in 2013 was all about. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaetino Report, and I'm talking to Dante Alencastre. I went to one of the first meetings of the Trans-Latina Coalition when she, it was only a dream, a vision that she had of having this uh, trans-led and employing trans women, trans Latina women for her non, a nonprofit that she was thinking about putting up. And now it's a reality, it's Mm -hmm. been a reality for more than two years and she's thriving and she's able to do everything that she had envisioned because she, she had, like I always say, she had the goods. It wasn't my film, it wasn't the story. She had gone through hell and back and learned from her challenges to become the powerhouse activist that she is right now. And I'm so proud to have been attached to her in that way and learning from her still up to this day. She's
7: really an inspiration. I mean, one feels dwarfed by, you know, uh, her life story that she lived to tell the tale. You know, well, we could do a whole show on Bambi. In fact, we should get Bambi on Tell Her Own Story here. Uh, But the film was fantastic. I've seen it. I want to back up a little bit to uh, growing up in Peru because you were born there. You grew up there with a single mom, a nurse, and a house full of women where you say you grew up to be a loca. (laughs)
8: Right? Well, that's what the kids in the neighborhood used to call me. (laughs) La loca? (laughs) I don't want to
7: tell you, mijo, but they still do. (laughs) Well, with with a little more
8: respect, I think. Absolutely,
7: absolutely. (laughs) But your mom knew very early who you were and what you needed, which really eventually prompted the move to New York. It's like she knew what was going to happen if you stayed in Peru. Tell us.
8: Mom knows first. And even before I knew... She knew my inclinations. I used to play with paper dolls. I transformed my teddy bear into Sarita, my A teddy drag bear. queen? A yeah. drag queen teddy bear? <laughs> who, who I uh, remember her, uh, the woman who made her dresses, used to make little dresses for Sarita. I would always go everywhere with Sarita. So she knew. And like I said, my household was full of uh, women. But at one point, when I think I was, uh, I don't know, six, seven years old, one of my uncles came to live with us. He had been living here in the States. And immediately, as soon as he saw me, he told my mom, and I heard this because I wasn't in the room. She said, I think there's something wrong with your son, you know. I think you should take him to a psychologist. And my mom she, like a fierce woman that she's, she was, she was like, you don't mess with my son. If you don't like living here, you can go find your a woman and you can move out. But my son is a happy child. I'm not going to do anything to him. There's nothing wrong with him. You raise your kids the way you want to raise them and leave my son alone. And that was it. That's what I grew up with, that fierceness, that indi- individuality. But she knew. She knew, like... Um, uh, in the early 70s, there had been a military coup in, in in Peru that was backed by the Cubans and the Russians, and they thought Peru was gonna become the next Cuba. And you know what that meant? There was gonna be Marxism and communism. And knowing the kind of kid I was, I, I used to dance, I used to do theater, I was in the choir. As she said, I hated playing football. I, I, I mean, I played with the kids. It was fine. But they were already taunting me and calling me loca. Because a maricón, I didn't know what that meant. You know, I'd I never seen a maricón. It, it wasn't part of my realm. But they were calling me loca, and I'm sure she heard, or somebody, one of my aunts told her. And the first opportunity, she got a contract to work in New York as a nurse. She said, I'm taking my son. At, at the age of 47, without speaking a word of English, she said, I'm taking my son with me. And never looked back, you how, know, I, how even old though she you? had. I was 13. Yeah. So I started high school in, uh, in New York, not speaking a, a word of English either. And then I finished high school, got to Columbia. She paid for my Ivy League school. And so you must have been smart. ¿Qué pasó? I don't know. <laughs> Something happened. <laughs> but uh,
7: what happened, uh, among other things, at Columbia is that uh, you fell in love with theater. Well, yes. I was say, out of nowhere, but as a child, you were already doing theater, really.
8: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my mom was a nurse for 50 years, and I wanted to be a doctor. So when I got to Columbia, I was uh, in the, the pre med program. And then I just hated the sight of blood. I hated chemistry and physics and everything that had to do with science. And I took my first playwriting course, and I was like, oh. And then my mom took me to see my first Broadway show, which was Grease. I saw the original Grease, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I love this, you know, and I was, that was it. But, you know, for a kid, you know, immigrant kid with a single mom on, a you know, limited income, it was kind of a pipe dream. But my mom always said to me, even before she passed away, I just wanted to be happy. So she supported all my crazy ideas, all my crazy travels, all my crazy course taking and all over the world because she just believed in me. She thought someday I was going to do something special and great and relevant. And that's what I tried to instill to the people that I meet, the younger people that I meet. Unfortunately, most of our families are not like that. They cannot afford to be like that, supportive. My mom was a single mom, and all her salary and her resources went to me.
7: Well, you have accomplished everything that uh,
8: she wanted for you, and you are happy. You're
7: always happy. I love. One day I'd like to see you depressed, because every <laughs> time I see you, you're you're happy. It, it, you radiate. I mean, that's a gift. Oh, thank that's you. a gift. Now listen, Colombia. Well, life is
8: too short to be unhappy, dear. And there's so much to do. I mean, our community has so many needs, and we who are privileged, you and I we have to give back. I mean, my whole, like, you know, segue into the why I'm the director or executive director of the Alliance is because our goal with the Alliance as an, a queer arts nonprofit is to promote, nurture, and produce new emerging LGBTQ artists and art, which goes along with everything I'm doing also with my films, which is not only uh, elevate our, our community and these trans voices that have not been heard, but also the new non-binary and gender non-conforming voices that are out there. I mean, I was at a a, a job fair last week, and we had 150 people stop by. They stopped by Starbucks, too, but they don't want to be working at Starbucks. They want to be doing their art. And we're there to support them um, as much as I can, you know, because we are a small nonprofit. I wish we were bigger, but that's what we're doing with the Alliance.
7: Thank you so much for being here, Dante. We could do a whole novella here, you know. Thank you for being here, and thank you for all that you have done and all that you are doing and that you will do. Thank you so much.
8: Thank you, Dan, for giving me the opportunity to talk about the community that I love, that I want to uplift, and I want to support till my dying breath.
7: A long way off.
8: A long way off. All right. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, Dan.
7: This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to Dante Alencastre. And a few gracias to my dad, Lalo Guerrero, who wrote and sings our opening theme, Los Chucos Suaves. My producer, Steve Pride, thank you so much. The Gaytino Report is recorded at KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud.
2: AIDS Diva, The Legend of Connie Norman. It's screening at Outfest 2021. Tickets to a digital platform of films are available at outfest.org. You don't have to leave, you can stay home. No mask required. Well, I don't know, I don't know your house. I don't know who's there. Don't go away, we'll be right back.
1: Tom of Finland, The Adult Doll. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Recommended for adults 21 and older and anatomically correct, the Tom of Finland 001 Rebel action figure became available in 2003. He's patterned after the artwork of Tuko Laksonen, better known as Tama Finland, creator of some of the most erotic images of 20th-century gay male life. His erotic artwork is exhibited on permanent museum collections worldwide. Standing 13 inches tall, this action figure was created by renowned toy sculptor Norman Franklin Lloyd. Its vinyl body is fully posable with 19 points of articulation. And true to the Tama Finland look, he is very muscular, sensual, and exaggerated. The look is based on James Dean, the rebel. Included are a number of interchangeable parts and certificate of authentication with the seal, Tom. Play hard, play safe. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Glenn Lash, in Philadelphia.
5: Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you?
2: Welcome back. I am Carell, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Next, an LA drag legend sits down with a transgendered music treasure. That sounds like a joke. An LA drag legend walks into a bar with a transgendered music treasure. That's the kind of bar I want to be at, honey.
9: I'm Ms. Barbecue with. The incomparable pianist, recording artist, writer and producer on Transparent, Our Lady J. I've always liked to start with the basics. Where were you born, family-wise and stuff?
0: I come from Pennsylvania. I am a hillbilly. I was raised in an Amish village of 200 people. Half the town was Amish. The other half were cows and rednecks. And... I left that community because I didn't feel safe, I didn't feel understood. I sought asylum in metropolitan areas. I lived in New York for 10 years. I also lived in Dallas for a minute, Oklahoma City, Michigan for a minute, but most of my life I've spent in big cities. I've kept my family at a distance. I still speak to them occasionally to check in, but I came out when I was 17 as queer Mm -hmm. and then, at 26 as trans. Uh, 27, rather. And I am 38 now. Honey, no lines. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been out longer than I was in the closet.
9: You're a trained pianist. Uh, yeah, I'm a classical
0: pianist. Classical girl. pianist? Whoa! Classical. Um, how did you train as a pianist? We got everything at auction. People would die, and they would auction it off for really cheap. That's how we got everything. We were really poor. And so my parents... When I was four, got a piano at an auction for a hundred dollars, right? So they found a piano teacher that would teach me piano lessons for four dollars a lesson. So first of all, they're very economic <laughs> <laughs> but they wanted for you. well, I wouldn't stop banging on it was the thing. <laughs> That's the way the story goes. I wouldn't stop banging on it and they're like, we better get this child some lessons so that at least it'll sound good, you know? <laughs> music was a big part of our lives, though. We were very religious and music was a part of the church. My great-grandparents' generation, my great-grandfather was Mennonite. And then I had great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents. Can, can, can you explain what were, a
9: Mennonite is?
0: Mennonite is, okay, so you know Amish, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knows Amish. It's very similar. Old order Mennonites, they were. Old Order Mennonites came first, and then the Amish broke off of the Old Order Mennonites Mm. because the Amish wanted to be more conservative. So Old Order Mennonites are a little less conservative than Amish people. Some of them still drive horse and buggies, but they can use electricity, for example, that's not run by a generator, which Amish people, they only use generators. They cannot be connected to the outside world in any way, whereas the Mennonites are a little more integrated into, into the outside world. A lot of Mennonites in my town had cars, but the cars all have to be black or navy blue, and all the chrome on the cars have to be painted matte black or matte navy blue. And that's because you can't have shiny things to distract you from God, right? Hmm. Can you imagine <laughs> when I saw my first rhinestone, honey? I was, I'm like, was, crazy I was a full-grown adult. <laughs>
2: it was very
1: excited.
0: <laughs> I'm digressing. It's okay. So even the Mennonites' music was very important. And then they broke off and became evangelical Christians. So now my whole family, they're evangelical Christians. And music is a huge part of evangelism. So I grew up with music in the church. Did you play in the church? I did. First of all, I started off in the children's church when I was like eight or something. I remember my first public performance accompanying someone was, I accompanied my father when I was nine. It was, How Great Thou Art, Honey. And so music was just a part of life. And it was how I found acceptance because I was a little queer, faggy, whatever I was. But when I got up there on stage and when I played the piano and when I dazzled them with my talent and abilities, all that chatter stopped. Did you hide behind that? I don't know if it was hiding as much as it was putting my energy into it. Mm -hmm. You know, I took all my energy and put it into it. And so what happened is I got freakishly good at it. And we found a piano teacher who would come up from Baltimore, a two-hour drive, and he taught me. And sometimes when we couldn't afford it, he taught me for free. The other times, I got a scholarship, and that's how he taught me. And he saw that I had this talent, and so he helped me apply to a boarding arts school in Michigan, and he helped me get a scholarship there. And that's what saved my life, and that's why I'm here today and not in that tiny little town. When I left and went to that conservatory, I would put Bible scriptures up on the wall, and I thought gay people were evil. I knew I was queer, but I learned that that was evil, and I had internalized that. So I tried to uh, proselytize to people for my first semester away. And looking back on it, I was like, oh my God, people really had patience with me. Yes, they did. People had (laughs) patience. I must have been really charming.
9: (laughs) I noticed in your music,
0: you brought gospel with you. Mm, Yeah. Well... That all happened kind of by accident as well. You know, I just follow where the wind blows me, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) I was doing really well in New York as a classical pianist. I was playing for American Ballet Theater, Mark Morris Dance Group, Alvin Ailey, all of these amazing dance institutions I was doing really well at. Then I transitioned, I started transitioning. The first thing I did was I gave myself permission to be beautiful, whatever that meant. When did you start transitioning? Well, I found out I was HIV positive in 2004, and that stopped the drinking. That that sobered me up for a minute and put me into therapy. How did this happen? And through that, I realized that a lot of my sabotaging and a lot of my self-destruction came from the hatred of my transness. So I came out, and I started transitioning 2005, 2006, But the first thing I did was, I didn't even say I was trans. I just said, I just want to be beautiful. I'm I'm tired of people telling me that I can't be feminine. They were shaming my femininity. And so I gave myself permission to be feminine and beautiful. The next thing you know, I was appearing female. And I was like, oh, I guess... That's what it looks like. That's what it (laughs) 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 looks like. I I'm trans. Yeah. So when I started transitioning, I would walk into rehearsal spaces. And this is in New York City. Liberal-minded people. And they were confused. This was before... The trans tipping yeah. You know, this is a long time ago. This is 11, 12 years ago. People didn't know what I was doing. They thought I was doing like a drag show at nine in the morning. I was like, honey, I'm not putting on a show at nine in the morning. This is how I express myself. And that's all they knew. And so I was getting a lot of stares. I was getting less work. This is the problem with intellectual liberalism is it is not as open-minded as it thinks it is. So I was judged and I started getting a lot less work. Out of that, I was doing a lot of reading and I was looking back at how do queer people survive in this society. And, you know, we had had a few examples of RuPaul. And in New York, there's Amanda Lepore. And so there was this downtown scene that was happening. And so I became part of that downtown scene. And I thought, well, the way I'll stay afloat is if I make myself into a character. So I took on a name, Our Lady J. Because I knew that people couldn't handle me on an eye-to-eye level. So I would put myself on a stage and then maybe people could listen to me because if you separate yourself and you put a spotlight on it, then it becomes performance and it becomes art and it becomes safe for them. So I made my performance about gender and I made my art about gender and I made it safe for them to listen to me. That's how I supported myself. I wasn't able to support myself anymore by just walking into a studio and walking into a classical situation. So I thought, well, I'm not a singer. (laughs) I'm a pianist. How am I going to do that? How am I going to put myself on stage I can't just play piano people would be bored so I learned how to sing I took some lessons it
9: reminds me of Nina Simone big time I love Nina Simone the the, the
0: story of how she trained this piano but
9: her survival they told her you have to sing or you can't Work here. Yeah, that so was one to... of my
0: inspirations. I was yeah, like, well, I love sh- her. she did it as well. Yeah. So I'll do that. And so I learned how to sing. And then I was like, well, I can't just sing gospel music. I don't know how to dance. I'll learn how to sing, but I'm not gonna learn how to dance. So I'm not gonna make pop music. <laughs> like what kind of music am I gonna make? And I went back to my roots and I love gospel music and that's what we grew up singing in the evangelical church. It's just the message behind the gospel music. You know, you'll be in the middle of a song in church and you'll be like, Yeah, it's getting my praise on, honey. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you'll hear, and Let's pray for our homosexual brothers and sisters <laughs> who are going to hell. And like, ah! I'm like, Wait, I was having a good time <laughs> with this tune. What happened? So I decided that I would just take all the dogma out of it. I wouldn't mention God, but I would still have it be an uplifting experience because I think that's what gospel music it is. Getting a first verse, you're starting at a dark place that's not so happy. And by the end of the first chorus, you're already risen. And by the end of the song, after two key changes, honey, you're saved. Exactly. That's how I fell apart. We stand.
5: We are the perfect lights, the sun. We are the two becoming one. I don't know what...
9: This is Miss Barbecue with Our Lady J. Uh, Hi. We Stand is one of my favorites. Thank you. I listen to that over and over. Do you know who Imogene Hepp is? Uh, Yeah, she
0: was a big inspiration for that.
9: Yes, you can hear it. I was listening to it going, this is Imogene Hepp, Nina Simone, a little bit of Kate Bush, I'm already getting chills thinking about it. But oh, all those I love Tory. Tory, all those stirred in there, some PJ Harvey in there, a little bit Thanks. of, little bit of You're Fiona just like going through my Fiona my Apple, right yeah, now. <laughs> Fiona Apple in there. But it's smart. It's very smart, and Thank it's you. funny. People don't expect LGBT people to be smart. I've gotten that. You're yeah, well spoken yeah, for sure. a drag queen. You're well spoken oh, for a black God. person. You're well spoken. Right. Is that how you've yeah. always been? Or have you set a bar for yourself and always try to strive for that? Well, oh God. I'm sure you can be silly and, I, and frivolous., No, and, I'm very silly
0: and I fart and you know all that <laughs> you <stuff>. do. <laughs> I mean, right now I'm, I'm a comedy writer, but a lot of people say that transparents not a comedy, you know. Uh,
9: do you think the attention to the trans part has made
0: people take it too serious? I think it's important that we find humor in everything, right? That's just how we survive. It gets too dark if we take things too seriously. We laugh a lot in the writer's room. We laugh so much, actually. But at the end of the day, we never want to laugh at something that is serious. And right now, where we're at socially, we have to be careful at what we laugh at, because a lot of that can do more damage if we're not careful. In the writer's room, we laugh, we're irreverent. We write things out that don't end up in the final draft. And then what ends up that you see on the final product is both compelling and is humorous and is sad and relevant to where we're at right now. It's the only show about trans issues that is focused around trans issues and a family who is responding to a trans person and interacting with a trans person. And the fact that it is a dramedy more than a comedy has more to do of where we're at right now than what our actual intention is for the show, because we're just trying to reflect where we're at right now.
9: There's a lot of people in the LGBT community, especially in the trans community, they don't want to be activists. They just don't. They want to get their breasts and get their jobs and go about their business. Uh And then there are others who are called, kind of seen as, okay, she's an activist. Mm -hmm. Where do you see yourself?
0: I think I'm an activist by nature. I had to be an activist to survive. It's not because I found politics interesting. I find politics to be very boring, and I would rather not be an activist. I don't want to be an activist. I want to have a good life. I want to have a nice apartment. I want my dog to have the best dog food there is. You know? (laughs) Period. None of that's going to happen unless I'm an activist. Why Our Lady J? It's a queer name. Historically, as queer people, we take on these names. That comes from the Harlem Renaissance. And as a musician, I love the Harlem Renaissance. Also, there was a book called Our Lady of the Flowers that was written in the 40s in France by Jean Genet. And she wrote it from prison, and it was all about hustlers and thieves and drag queens and trans women. And I was obsessed with it. And they had these fantastical names. Davina was one of the names, funny enough, a character in Transparent. So I took on the name Our Lady. I wanted to be Our Lady of the something, but I didn't know what. And my birth name began with a J. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to change my name to when I transitioned, but I knew I wanted to begin with a J. So I chose the letter J. And J has a lot of other meanings as well. So I became Our Lady J. I used to go by Lady Barbecue. Amazing. You know, lady is a big thing in our community. Yeah. I resented Lady Gaga for the longest time. (laughs) Let's just talk about that. But you worked with her. I I was her pianist at NYU when she was Stephanie, and... Did you just call out Lady Gaga's real name? Yeah, Stephanie Germanotti. That's all over the internet. (laughs) So Steph, she's a cis girl, and I resented her for a long time, of co-opting a lot of queer things, and she did. And And she, she made her career out of that. Bless her heart. She's also put a lot back into the community, so I can't resent her too much.
9: I saw that you also worked with one of my favorites, Sia. Yeah. How was it working with Sia? How'd you?
0: It was surreal. Well, we became friends first, and then we started working together. I became her go to pianist for these gigs because she never toured. And so we would do these little charity gigs, and I played piano for her there. And then she was getting ready to put out her A Thousand Forms of Fear album. And in doing that, she started doing bigger gigs. And so the last time I performed with her was at the Hollywood Bowl two years ago. And we did five songs. It was one of those like radio station nights with Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande and Mm -hmm. all those kids. It was surreal. And then I got the job writing for Transparent three weeks later. And it was one of the worst things because I was like, do I tour a or Do I write for Transparent? And oh, the first world
9: problem. I know.
0: (laughs) I I felt very lucky to have that problem. Thank you
9: so much, Our Lady J for joining us. Are you taking. I don't even know what that means.
5: Here lies a girl Who swallowed her sharpie sauce Just to show you That she had Elegance, Elegance. Elegance. Elegance.
3: Here lies a girl
5: Who waged in inner war Just to show you That she
0: had it All under control, control. But circles around
2: Alrighty Daddy, that's it for tonight. I am Carell. be who you wanna be, Salon doesn't hurt anybody. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute Producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Now come on, you gotta follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email StevePride at stevepride.com. And as a reminder, we are a global podcast, honey. We are the world. We are the world. As well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted at kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor FM, Castbox, Pocket Cast, and wherever you get your podcast. A reminder Outfest 2021 runs from August 13th to August 22nd. And due to COVID, many of the films can be streamed online. Check it out at OutFest.com. See, now you don't have a reason to not go.
5: My mama told me when I was young We were all born superstars She rolled my hair and put her lipstick on In the glass of fur bartois There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he made you perfect, baby. So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far, and listen to me when I say, I'm beautiful Cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself and regret. Just love yourself and you set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Ooh, ain't no, ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way. Oh. Ain't I was born, I'm on the right track, baby I was born this way